This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour. A very pleasant day to you. I appreciate you joining us. I'm Joel Hilliker. Perhaps you've been following the progress of the James Webb Space Telescope. This is the most complex, most powerful scientific instrument ever made. And by all reports, it is nestled into its home in space a million miles from Earth. Everything is perfectly aligned. All scientific instruments are ready to go. And the images that we've been hoping for to coax more mysteries of God's creation from the deepest recesses of the universe should start streaming in within the next couple of months. On today's program, we're going to talk to one of the engineers who worked on the James Webb Space Telescope. He was one of about 10,000 people who contributed to the project, and he'll share some insights from his perspective on this scientific marvel. And on a closely related note, this past Sunday, we held commencement exercises for the graduating class of Herbert W. Armstrong College, a school I am privileged to teach at. I was delighted to be given the opportunity to deliver the commencement address this year, and I took that opportunity to talk about the James Webb Space Telescope. And I shared with the graduates some lessons I believe we can take from this extraordinary project. And... For our lengthy last word on today's program, I'll also share the recording of that address with you. Before we start talking about space, though, we're going to talk about Ukraine and the end of history. We'll learn about this in this report from trumpet writer Jeremiah Jacques. In his 1989 essay, The End of History... United States State Department official Francis Fukuyama suggested that mankind may not be seeing just the end of the Cold War, but the triumph of Western liberal democracy as, quote, the final form of human government. History, as he defined it, was the protracted struggle between freedom and oppression. And with the decisive victory of American liberalism and freedom, Over the forces of Soviet totalitarianism, history had come to an end. He argued that even though events would continue to happen, humanity's political evolution had reached its pinnacle. The sun had set on authoritarianism. The era of great powers warring against each other had ended, and liberal democracy, individual freedom, and popular sovereignty would continue to spread. Fukuyama wrote, What we may be witnessing is not just the end of the Cold War or the passing of a particular period of post-war history, but the end of history as such. Fukuyama was not alone in this optimistic forecast. U.S. President George H.W. Bush was among the leaders who shared in his vision. Bush's 1990 address to Congress held a future that was, quote, free from the threat of terror stronger in the pursuit of justice, and more secure in the quest for peace. President Bush said mankind was entering, quote, a new world that would be quite different from the one that we've known, a world where the rule of law supplants the rule of the jungle. 
The end of history was an exhilarating hypothesis for most Westerners. It became an instant sensation among policymakers and pundits. And as the 1990s continued, the evidence supporting it mounted. The newly independent Baltic nations cast off all legacy of the Soviet Union and cleaved to the West. All of Eastern Europe's former communist regimes were replaced by democratically elected governments. In East and Southeast Asia, capitalist development shifted political might in favor of West-looking classes. Soon, even Russia made political reforms, adopting capitalism and holding real elections. Yes, it was gangster capitalism, but give the Russian people time. Eventually, there was even talk of the possibility of Russia joining NATO. The West was elated. We had won. It was the end of history. But then some history happened. The September 11, 2001 terrorist attacks were a bolt from the blue. The West was profoundly jolted. But the optimists remained mostly undeterred. In an October 5, 2001 Wall Street Journal opinion piece, Fukuyama reminded readers of the nuance of his thesis. And he wrote, quote, I believe that in the end I remain right. A few years later, Russian President Vladimir Putin invaded the former Soviet nation of Georgia, bringing a large chunk of its territory back under Moscow's de facto control. His 2014 invasion of the former Soviet nation of Ukraine and his de jure annexation of its Crimean Peninsula was even more dramatic. These were alarming developments that looked disturbingly like history was still happening. Yet, even then, many Westerners viewed them as mostly isolated incidents. After all, the parts of Georgia and Ukraine that Putin took were peopled mainly by individuals who didn't seem to mind being returned to Russia. And surely Putin would stop there. With enough of this sort of wishful thinking, the optimists could maintain that real history, you know, the, the great struggles and the major wars that have epitomized mankind for millennia was still basically over. Despite some hiccups, they said, time is on the side of freedom. Economic interdependence is too strong to allow great power war. And the spread and supremacy of liberal democracy is still inevitable. Then came February 24th of this year. As Putin's tanks transgressed Ukraine's border that morning and rolled toward Kyiv, anything remaining of the dream that man had reached the end of history was flattened beneath their tracks. Any glimmer of hope that Russia and its partners would eventually integrate into the U.S.-led liberal democratic order was crushed. And the cold reality could no longer be denied, because this was not just a war between the army of Russia and the army of Ukraine. This was a war between two world views. Ukraine's people, for the most part, lean westward. Their worldview is aligned with that of the United States. They believe the will of the people should determine a nation's path, and that the Western model functions better for more people than anything else. They've long sought to join NATO and the European Union, thereby making Ukraine a treaty ally to America and dozens of other democracies. 
and they believe that as an independent nation, they have the sovereign right to join these or any other groups that they wish to join. Russia, on the other hand, rejects the very idea of liberal democracy as a sustainable model. Vladimir Putin has led this nation for the last 22 years as a ruthless authoritarian with the hearty support of the bulk of his people. And if his worldview wasn't clear enough after the invasions of Georgia and Ukraine's Crimea, he laid it totally bare in 2019, declaring, quote, liberalism is obsolete. Instead of leading Russia in a more democratic path the way the end of history thesis forecast, Putin has steered it in the opposite direction, and tens of thousands of his soldiers are now at work inside Ukraine, the flashpoint between worldviews where they're committing unspeakable atrocities in an effort to bring about a new global order. And Putin's Russia is not alone. China, India, Iran, South Africa, Belarus, Cuba, Nicaragua, Venezuela, all these countries are among the nations that are directly or indirectly supporting Russia's illegal war. And in doing so, they are throwing their weight behind a return of history. Meanwhile, Russia's war has catalyzed moves by Germany and Japan to reverse decades of military hesitancy and to double their defense budgets as they prepare for a return to great power war. This all adds up to show that history is not over. And many analysts are being forced to acknowledge that a dramatic new chapter is just beginning. And it's a new chapter that has implications far beyond Ukraine's borders. International politics expert Ivan Krostev wrote on February 27th, We are all living in Vladimir Putin's world now. And he described it as a world in which brute force crushes democratic rights and the rule of law. The New York Times Australian bureau chief, Damien Cave, wrote, Many foreign policy leaders already see Ukraine in dire terms as marking an official end of the American era and the start of a more contested multipolar moment. Even Francis Fukuyama himself has admitted that this year's war may well mark the end of the end of history. He told the New Statesman that his ultimate nightmare is a world in which China and Russia work together, supporting each other's expansionism and totalitarianism. And he said, quote, then you would really be living in a world that was being dominated by these non-democratic powers. If the United States and the rest of the world couldn't stop that from happening, then that really is the end of the end of history. End quote. Right now, no one is preventing profound Russo-Chinese cooperation. So it turns out that history, tangled, unjust, retrograde, violent, ugly human history, did not end in 1989. A great many were seduced by the euphoria of the end of history myth, but readers of the Bible never should have been taken in by it. Numerous Bible passages forecast a third world war, a great power war that will soon be fought by totalitarian strongmen in Russia, China, India, and Europe, using vast arsenals of nuclear weapons against each other and other nations. This conflict will annihilate any remaining vestiges of liberal democracy 
and it'll make all of mankind's previous wars look like playground skirmishes. Matthew 24, 21-22 state, For there will be greater anguish than at any time since the world began, and it'll never be so great again. In fact, unless that time of calamity is shortened, not a single person will survive. That's the New Living Translation. So it's clear that this war will be by far the bloodiest chapter in mankind's history. And in the lead up to it, major historic events, such as Russia's barbaric invasion of Ukraine, should not catch us unawares. History has not ended. And the scriptures make clear that whether Russia wins this current round in its push against the liberal order or not, a historic new chapter is beginning that will lead into an era of unprecedented global calamity and suffering. These will be the bloodiest pages in mankind's strife-ridden history. To many, the violence and the suffering will look like it is humanity's final chapter. But the Bible makes plain that this is actually only the last page of the prologue of mankind's exciting future. Prophecies show that this nuclear World War III will be interrupted by the return of Jesus Christ. He will return and crush the violence and then force upon the peoples of Russia, China, India, America, and those of the whole world the peace that has always eluded mankind. And at that time, chapter one of real history can finally begin. is the voice of the Trumpet News Magazine. You're listening to Trumpet Hour. The James Webb Space Telescope is a highly impressive achievement for the scientific community. This contraption has journeyed a million miles from Earth so it can observe the universe from a perfect observational perch out there. Everything has gone precisely as planned. And now all four of its scientific instruments are being calibrated and made ready for science operations, which should begin soon. Early test images are perfect. And the success of this project so far is exceeding scientists' most optimistic expectations. This project took 25 years and $10 billion, and there are so many individual components, so many technological advancements required, so many technical puzzles to solve to make this possible. NASA estimates that 10,000 people worked on this mission. Well, today we have one of those 10,000 people with us. His name is Brian Code. For 19 years, he was head engineer of the temperature sensors aboard the James Webb Space Telescope. These are really important when you have scientific instruments capturing infrared light, and they have to be extremely cold so their readings aren't distorted by their own heat. So to share his perspective as a member of the Webb team, we welcome to Trumpet Hour, Brian Code. Hello there. Hello. Thanks, thanks for having me on. Yeah, it's great to be talking to you. So I, I did the uh, my best layman's impression of the, uh, the work that you did on this project. Tell us in your words uh, what your team contributed and why this was important to the project. Well, we contributed 
temperature sensors to the project. And uh, they're, they're really important for a lot of reasons on, on an instrument like this. Like it's, it uses uh, infrared detectors and an infrared detector uh, changes, its uh, performance changes with its temperature. So, so we provided the sensors that um, gave a very precise measurement of the temperature of that sensor. And then that can be used for compensating the, uh, the reading or the, the information that that infrared detector is taking in to account for its actual temperature. Mm-hmm. So that's just one example, just to help it, it as a compensation type device to help make that sense, that infrared detector do the job. So this isn't the first work that you've done on um, on technology that's been launched up into space. Is that right? Oh, that's right. Yeah, just about any uh, satellite that's gone up all the way back to the Voyagers uh, had our temperature sensors on them. So w- what were some of the technological advancements that were required for this particular project that you had to make, the puzzles that you had to solve to uh, contribute these components? Well, I think the, the main thing was the, the packaging of the sensor, because the, the sensor that went up with the Voyager, what, like 50 years ago, um, is really about the same sensor that we put on, on this space telescope. And, but the packaging is different, where there's a, there are different coatings that you put on the sensor, and then it gets placed on a housing that gets placed on, say, the, uh, the infrared detector or on the solar shield or on you know, various places on the, on the, inst- on the satellite um, require different packaging. And when you, when you um, put a sensor in a housing or like some are in little screws that screw into a, a like an aluminum body and some are on a little surface tab because it's taking a surface temperature, say maybe on the, on the solar shield, so lots of different um, packaging, and you have to prove to yourself and also to the program and to the insurance people that ultimately uh, are also responsible that the thing will will perform uh, the first time, the second, all the way through the life of the the program. Right. Yeah. So it's that packaging that that really is is a is unique to the application, mm-hmm. and that's a so developing the product make the manufacturing process and then all the validation testing around that packaging is the that's the piece of work that we we did i i definitely want to talk about this testing process uh before i ask you about that how many sensors did did you how many sensors are on the james webb telescope that you all provided well you know i'm not sure exactly um in the hundreds i would say wow on there yeah and various Various places, like I mentioned, the you know the the uh, compensation devices for the infrared detectors to the solar shield because as it changes temperature, it changes shape a little bit. So you need to be able to um, uh, adjust that. There are sensors on on uh, the uh, fuel valves that that fuel the rockets that fire from time to time to keep the satellite in the proper. Uh, orbit path um, and they, there it's a pretty simple application on the surface where it's just a little thermostat with a heating element mm-hmm. to 
you know, and just like in the household, you know, where you need, it calls for heat, you need a sensor that, that uh, will tell the, the control system to turn on the furnace at home and to turn on the heater on the hydrazine fuel valve on the satellite. Mm-hmm. So there are those. So it's just really scattered all around the, the satellite. The temperature sensors in our homes never get down to minus 422 degrees. <laughs> <laughs> they certainly don't. They don't. So yeah. uh, this this telescope is being sent to a destination a million miles from Earth. So everything has to work absolutely perfectly the first time. Uh, you can't send a repair mission in case something goes wrong. They took great pains to make sure everything was going to function properly. So the testing had to be extremely rigorous. Just uh, tell us how how your team accounted for that and the rigors of the testing process. Well, the the testing process is pretty well standardized in the space industry. Mm. So the the contractor that built the the satellite um, would choose from a suite of tests depending on the application. So so that set of tests includes vibration and and thermal cycling and high temperature soak or you know, where it would be held at a high temperature for a long time or a, or a low temperature for a long time. And then uh, power, uh, uh, kind of a power application shock, different, different, uh, lots of different, I used to call them torture tests, you know, uh-huh. where you would really push the sensor to the limit. And, and uh, so they would choose the suite of tests uh, based on the application within that that satellite, and then we knew how to run some of those tests in house, and then we would contract out tests that we where we didn't have the the capability. So uh, so some of those I know that uh, on some components of that they actually had to put that into a vacuum or they had to put it into uh, cryogenic conditions so that to, to make sure that it would function properly at these just extremely, extremely cold temperatures. The sensors that you uh, applied, how much of that were you able to do or how much did you have to send out uh, yourselves? Uh, we, we were able to do that mainly with a liquid nitrogen um, mm-hmm. is, is uh, what we would use to do this super cold shock tests and then we have we had chambers typically it went down to maybe uh you know only only but like minus 40 or maybe down to minus 80 degrees c um celsius for a lot of the testing and then then there were some that would go all the way to liquid nitrogen Mm -hmm. and which is about minus 196 c and so it's still not down to the absolute zero which in centigrade is minus 273 0.15 um, degrees Celsius. So we, we didn't do anything uh, approaching that, but, but it was down to about minus 200. I gotcha. So uh, was there any, uh, any, I I guess with all of the components that you send out, you want them to be fail safe and, and make sure that they're going to perform in whatever conditions, was there any additional work that you had to do on this project for that reason? Well, uh, to qualify the design, we did a complete, there's a full set of testing that we, we went through with our, our customer to, uh, to qualify the design. And then for any production lab, then they, we needed a certain number of what we call flight parts. And those are maybe 120 or 150 parts in the flight lot. 
And then, so what you would do is make maybe 200 part devices, may a random selection out of that production parts, and then we would send those randomly selected parts through the suite of tests that the customer uh, specified. And the logic is that if the parts, the devices can survive those tests as randomly selected from the lot, then the ones, the flight parts would also pass those tests because you don't want to put your flight parts through all that, all the, that, uh, the torture torture tests and then expect them to last for 30 years in space. You right. know, you, you want your, your flight parts to be uh, pretty much untouched. So. Yeah. So, uh, there's so many parts to uh, a project like this all has to come together for this to work. As I said, there were some 10,000 people involved from your perspective. Mm -hmm. What was it like to be a part of a team that size? What were some of the things that NASA did to, to successfully, uh, pull together the, the creative abilities of a, of a team that size? I think the key thing was, you know, NASA chose the main, the prime contractors for the, the satellite itself. And then, then the, that company uh, would either, um, they would subcontract big portions, maybe the solar shields or um, different large systems. And then they, they would work with, like you might say, lower level or outer, uh, less um, direct contractors like, like I was working for, um, as like the, we were the temperature sensor contractor that, that, you know, built the sensors for that satellite. So the, what really made it work was the contractors that NASA selected were uh, great collaborators. You know, they, they knew that they needed us to provide the expertise to make these sensors and to be able to, and to trust our uh, test results because they weren't re running the test. They were just depending on us to do that and give them data. Mm -hmm. And then, and so, and then we worked with the contractor and the, the fun part for me really was learning from them about reliability testing and, and the, the, uh, the, the specifications that they would write and they knew how to specify something that would survive in space. And we knew how to fulfill that specification. So that's the connection really mm -hmm. between us and the, and the larger contractor that was building the, the satellite itself. Yeah. So uh, what, what's it been like, I guess, to uh, it sounds like you've done some pretty exciting projects over uh, your years as an engineer. Um, but this has to be uh, kind of, at the top of the list in terms of the the public uh public interest and and uh just the the scope of the project uh what's it been like how has this changed you or what personal lessons have you taken from this i think um uh, being willing to l listen and learn from these companies uh both were that that was uh, good for me professionally, and and it made the work more fun, really, because I got to learn from these people uh, all about reliability engineering, but that I just had not really touched to that level before. Mm -hmm. So, so that was just great, you know. And and um, I did uh, in the past 
in the same market area, we were involved with the, the Mars landers also. You know, so those vehicles that were driving around on Mars had our our devices on them. So that was, you know, years ago now, but that was another really uh, uh, fun kind of public project that um, was helpful for us in the manufacturing uh, area because we got to bring our operators into the process or or kind of into the, the whole excitement, I guess, of it because they got to see uh the mars lander on the on you know doing its job driving around watching the news and they got to realize that they were part of it you know just like i was as an engineer and they they were as as people building the products and so that these high profile projects are pretty are really nice that way well, there's not too many people that could say that they have uh, parts that they've helped to design and manufacture that are a million miles from Earth, let alone 140 million miles from Earth, like the the, the sensors on the uh, the Mars rover. So that's uh, that's something that you can put in your uh, professional portfolio that is a is a bit unique. Uh, so. <laughs> How, uh, just one final question, how are you, how much are you uh, following what's happening with the, the telescope and is there anything in particular you're, you're excited to see? Well, I mean, you described the, the initial photos from the, at the onset here and uh, it's really is uh, uh, great to see the progress, you know, in, in technology and hoping that we, we learn some exciting things, you know, from, from the, uh, images that they can collect and um i i think it's just just uh so satisfying to see work that people have done over so many years come to fruition and Mm -hmm. you know watching i sat christmas morning watching it launch you know and seeing the the people in that room just erupt in in uh uh, happiness, you know, when when they kind of went over the the threshold of success, you know, and and I I felt it myself, you know, and and just being part of that, but just just knowing that euphoria that they had in the room uh, just was was uh, uh, really gratifying. Marvelous. Well, we'll keep our eyes on what's uh, happening up there. We're excited to uh, see what what kind of uh, revelations emerge from that telescope. We've been talking with engineer Brian Code about his time working on the James Webb Space Telescope. We really appreciate uh, you taking the time to talk with us. Well, it's fun for me to talk about it, so thanks for having me. for today's last word. This past Sunday, we held commencement exercises for Herbert W. Armstrong College, where I and many other of the Trumpet staff have an opportunity to teach. We also have students from the college working in our offices on their student work program. I was delighted to be given the opportunity to deliver the commencement address this year, and I'll share that with you now. Herbert W. Armstrong College administration and faculty, friends and families and students, welcome. And to the graduates of 2022, congratulations. 
Two years flies by. Four years doesn't take much longer. Life goes fast. And that tells you two things. One, you need to make it count. Carpe diem. Seize the day. And two, it's, it's really nice to have occasions like this where you get to step back. You can take it all in. Life tends to move at a speed that makes it easy to lose perspective. You're thinking about that term paper deadline, the latest inflation index numbers, the hilarious video of the toaster popping with, that makes the cat jump three feet straight up. The average American touches their phone 2,617 times every 24 hours. One study found that college students switch tasks on average once every 65 seconds. And the median amount of time they focus on any one thing is just 19 seconds. Their attention spans are chopped up finer than Chris Stiles dicing onions. <laughs> so we need things that stop the blur, that make us slow down, help us to see the big picture. We need milestones like graduations. We need the weekly Sabbath. We need quiet contemplation. The grad brunch this morning used the theme of the, the James Webb Space Telescope. This is the engineering marvel that NASA launched four and a half months ago and deployed to a little gravitational eddy a million miles away a space from where it can sit and observe the universe. And I think of a project like that serving a similar purpose if we think about it. It pulls us out of the hubbub of daily life. It gives us perspective. It gets us to think about the size and the scale of the universe and where we fit in the grand scheme. And these are things that become more and more important in a world disappearing into its smartphone screens, a world split by racial hatreds and political schisms. The scientists behind this project are contemplating questions and seeking answers of cosmic scope, truths that transcend the blur of the day-to-day, -day, that give meaning to the here and now. I've been thinking about this project, and I believe it has a few lessons that you graduates might find useful as you sit here today, ready to launch to fulfill your mission in life. It was 27 years ago, 1995, a group of scientists were having a bull session. They were kicking around ideas. The Hubble telescope had just launched a few years before. It was just starting to produce breathtaking pictures that were transforming our view of the universe. These scientists thought about how to push the envelope of discovery. They wanted an even bigger, more powerful telescope to see deeper and clearer, to see infrared parts of the light spectrum that even Hubble couldn't see. And that's impressive. You know, it's easy to, to think, well, Hubble, get, that gives us plenty. Generally, we want to cuddle into our warm blanket of what we already know. It takes curiosity, it takes courage and hard work to venture into the unknown. I think about 
the namesake of our college, Herbert W. Armstrong, when he started studying and he realized so many of the doctrines taught by churches didn't come from the Bible. He had a powerful curiosity and a willingness to study arduously hour upon hour and God was able to open his mind and teach him profound truths. Our chancellor has taken the same approach and we have a whole library of his books that show God blessing his inspired and penetrating searching and study. You talk about having lofty goals. These scientists were already peering into the heavens millions, even billions of light years out, and they thought, let's go further. This is the most obvious lesson to grasp, graduates, as you launch out into the rest of your life. Aim high. Aim for the stars. It sounds cliche, but there is so much in this world that pulls your gaze downward, that gets you to, to mire in, in materialism and distraction. You're going to have to start making your own meals. You're going to have to start paying your own bills and having to deal with your own leaky ductwork on your home's HVAC system. And all that stuff can fill your frame of reference if you don't keep perspective, if you're not working toward grander goals. It happens. It happens to graduates. It happens to all of us. God wants you to have grand ambition and cosmic vision. And looking up helps. God has directed many of his people to, to look into the heavens. Job, Abraham, Isaiah, John, lift up your eyes on high, God said. The warrior poet David studied the sky and he wrote in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. When you go outside on a clear night and look up like those men did, you see around 3,000 to 10,000 stars, suns, that are so far distant, the light reaching your eye left its source thousands of years ago. And God took pains to give us that view. He positioned our planet as a perfect observational perch. And he put all that out there and he has plans for all of that and we're in those plans. God really does want us to aim high. Don't get caught staring at your feet don't get distracted by the silly things in this noisy world. Keep your eyes on the horizon. Keep looking up. The Apostle Paul tells us in Colossians 3, set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. And that doesn't mean sticking your head in the clouds. It means aiming for big goals. It means seeing God in the picture. It means working methodically, relentlessly through the problems and the puzzles that enable you to achieve those big goals. And this is another powerful lesson from the James Webb Space Telescope. Based on early studies, scientists thought it would cost $500 million and that they would be able to launch it in 2007. But then as they converted those plans into reality. They realized how complex 
this really was. The costs mushroomed a billion dollars, 1.8, 2.5 billion. The launch kept getting delayed, 2009, 2011, 2013. It was an epic version of you asking for an extension on your term paper. <laughs> but they weren't just trying to hit 2,500 words on their word count. The challenge was build a telescope that folds up like origami so it squeezes into a rocket, make sure it survives the shocks of launch and space travel, guarantee everything unfolds perfectly and that it parks itself at a precise parking spot a million miles away, no mistakes. Because you can't send a repairman out there. Once it launches, that's it. The telescope failed a test in March 2018, and a review board found 344 potential single-point failures, any one of which would make the whole project fruitless. So you look at those odds, and you, you can understand why they took their time. All told, the launch date was delayed around 18 times and the cost grew to $10 billion. So their initial estimates were off by about 14 years and about $10 billion. So the lesson is whenever you run into difficulties, procra procrastinate and keep spending money. <laughs> Actually, that's not the lesson. That only works if you're spending the government's money. <laughs> the lesson is worthy goals are worth fighting for. There are times when things are harder and they take longer than you expect. Really, worthwhile things take time. They take focus. They take determination. They take perseverance. Building a career. Building a business. Building a family. Building a life a well-lived life. These things don't spring into full bloom as quickly or as easily as, as you probably hope. Don't give up. Stay positive. Keep working. Play the long game. Theodore Roosevelt once said, keep your eyes on the stars and your feet on the ground. Again and again, Scripture reminds us of the need for patient endurance. If you get impatient or you try to force the issue or you know something isn't quite right and you launch anyway or you give up, you will fail. God has been unfolding his master plan over millennia and planning for eons before that. He's had a lot of setbacks because of angels and people failing him. But he knows the outcome is worth it. And as Paul said in Philippians 1, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Dr. John Mather is the senior project scientist on the James Webb Telescope. He's 70 years old. He's a fascinating man. Just imagine overseeing a multi-billion dollar project that stretches over 10 or 15 or 20 years that involves around 10,000 people. And if one thing goes wrong, it's all for nothing. That is pressure. 
you, you thought it was tough trying to pull off a perfect formal dinner for foods class. How do you make sure everything is going to work properly? Well, in one interview, Dr. Mather made an invaluable point. He talked about how much they tested everything. They built multiple versions of each component, and they put them through all kinds of trials and tests. And students, that's, that's the phase that we're in right now as God prepares us for our ultimate mission. He's putting our instruments through shock tests and stress tests and vacuum tests and cryogenic tests. The more tests, the more you know this is a really important mission. Dr. Mather said, you rehearse everything. You practice and practice and practice. And then he said another key was this. You have grouchy people come and tell you when you're not doing it right. That's really important, even if we don't like being told. They brought in review panels. They brought in engineers who would come and they'd look at everything and they'd say, don't do it like that. They asked for criticism every step of the way. That takes humility. That's recognizing that we have blind spots, areas where we, we think we're right, it all makes sense to us, but we just don't quite have the full picture. That's a beautiful life lesson. Seek out correction. If you're going to reach your uttermost potential, you need adjustments, you need course corrections. None of us likes it. All of us need it. Educa educator Ron Clark says, when he gives feedback to the top performers in an organization, they say, oh, good idea. I'll remember that next time. When he points out something they did wrong, they say, oh, so sorry, it won't happen again. I'll fix it right now. But he says, the generation between 24 and 35 years of age seems so shocked whenever someone points out something they did incorrectly. And they can become really defensive. We've built the young generation up as being so smart and gifted and special that they take offense when someone points out that something they did wasn't good enough. Their favorite reaction is, well, in my defense, or they'll say, no one told me I was supposed to do it a different way. Don't say those things. Say, I'm sorry. It won't happen again. Don't forget how limited your perspective is as a kid fresh out of college. We love your energy. We need your energy. But it takes time and experience to gain wisdom. Get counsel. Seek out correction. And when you get it, listen and apply it. You'll save yourself a lot of trouble. In fact, I think this is the closest thing to a golden ticket to the kingdom of God there is. Because if you're correctable, God will always be able to get you where you need to be. Something else Dr. Mather said astounded me. This was just a few days before this contraption representing decades of work and billions of dollars would leave Earth never to be seen again. And this interviewer said, that's got to be a very anxious moment for you, I'm sure. 
Dr. Mather said no. He said, I don't get anxious about stuff I can't deal with. And the interviewer was a bit stunned. And he said, well, can you kind of tell me why? And Dr. Mather answered, I'm not anxious about things because I know that we're doing the right thing to make the best possible plan. So when somebody says we should worry about this, we worry about it and then we make a plan. So when you're 70 years old, you get tired of worrying about stuff. You just say, we'll make a plan. That's some brilliant perspective. You're going to be making a lot of big choices in the time ahead. Job, career, move, marriage, house, family, a lot of things that you could fret and stress about. As you build your life, don't get anxious about stuff you can't deal with. Let God deal with that. When you need to worry about something, get his input, make a plan, and don't worry. Think about this. You are more important to God than that telescope is to those scientists. He has plans for you. He has enormous work that he's invested in you. And he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. He wants launch. He wants to usher you to your destination point to carry out your mission. And you do your part and he will get you there. Thankfully, all those delays, all the trial and testing, all those painful corrections proved it produced what looks to be perfection. Perfection. This satellite launched, it unfolded, it cruised out to its parking space, its scientific instruments have been tested and calibrated and verified. All is ready. It just sent mission control a batch of test pictures of a neighboring galaxy. And the clarity is stunning. Comparing one of these to a picture of the same sliver of space from NASA's previous infrared observatory, the Spitzer Space Telescope, the Spitzer image was a bunch of blurry splotches. James Webb turns those into focused, glittering diamonds. And one thing is worth noting about those images. In a sense, they look like a lot of other pictures of space, white dots, black background. <laughs> but what makes them so exciting is understanding what you're looking at. It's realizing this gives us an unparalleled window into an infinite universe. This is going to reveal mysteries about time and space and planets and creation that we've only guessed at. But even the scientists interpreting these images don't truly grasp their significance. What they really represent, these images, is our creator's ambition and his vision. Our father is anticipating the time when earth will be full to capacity and we want to expand out to other perfect planets. He wants to finish Project Earth 
and then replicate what we've accomplished together here elsewhere in the cosmos. That's what those images show. The heavens declare the glory of God. It's all about ambition and a vision of organized, harmonious, continually expanding family. And the fact that this scientific instrument offers that, it shows God's desire to connect with mankind. Again, perspective is crucial. You have to recognize what you're looking at. And this is true of so many things in life. So often, God is reaching out to you. He's extending opportunities. He's giving you snapshots of how deeply involved in your life he is. How awesome his plans for you are. So pay attention. Or you might just think, huh, white dots, black background. But your life teems with evidence of his presence, his intensive involvement, if you recognize what you're looking at. And this is one of those times. Right here, right now. James Webb is the most complex, most powerful instrument scientists have ever made. But I want to share a comment that Herbert W. Armstrong made in a radio broadcast in 1979. He called the human body and mind the most marvelous mechanism that exists on the face of this earth that has ever been designed and planned and put together. The human body and mind. Honestly, the, the science, the engineering in that telescope is silly compared to the science and the engineering in you. And the, the mission that God has in mind for you is infinitely more awesome and impressive. Don't forget that. What a waste if you fail to realize your potential and fulfill your purpose. What a tragedy if after building this telescope and sending it a million miles into space, NASA just pointed it back at Earth to take more videos of cats jumping at toasters. Always remember the majesty of your mission, why you are here. Keep setting your affection on things above. Keep building your godly ambition and vision. So here you are, in a sense, you, you've made it to your launch date. For a few of you, maybe it was delayed a time or two, or 18. But you're on the launch pad. Some of you have a fairly clear idea of what life will look like over the coming year or so. For others, you're flying into a fog. You have no idea what's next. But I know that like the pictures we're getting from space that are just getting more detailed all the time. Our future, while it stretches out infinitely before us, it is becoming clearer as we approach it. God is sharpening our spiritual vision with revelatory insights. And at the same time, he's blessing these scientific efforts because he wants us to have the richest vision of our universe future we possibly can. 
Wise King Solomon wrote, the path of the just is as the shining light that shines more and more unto the perfect day. Graduates, that is the flight path God has you on. Stay with him and you can guarantee that your future is as luminous as a night sky glittering with stars. So aim for the stars. Fight for goals worth fighting for. Embrace trial and test. Seek out correction. Don't get anxious about stuff you can't deal with. Understand what you're looking at. <laughs> and fulfill your God-given purpose. Nurture godly ambition. Nurture cosmic vision. And one last lesson from that telescope that I'll leave with you. On behalf of all your parents, no matter how far from home you travel, don't forget to check in with Mission Control and send us pictures. do it for today's trumpet hour you can send me any thoughts on today's program to letters at the trumpet.com thanks to my guests jeremiah jacques and brian code thanks to nick Irwin and dwight falk for engineering and production i'll leave you with this thought from carl's shirts ideals are like stars you will not succeed in touching them with your hands but like the seafaring man on the desert of waters you choose them as your guides and following them, you reach your destiny. Thank you for joining us on Trumpet Hour. Until next time, keep watching your world. You've been listening to Trumpet Hour on Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG, and online at kpcg.fm. Understand your world.